From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking about social media, and our guest is Sanan Aral, who is a professor at MIT and author of a book called The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt. And to just say up front that we recorded this interview with Sanan at the end of last year, so before the Capitol insurrection, before Donald Trump was removed from Twitter before Joe Biden became president. So there's, I think, just to start off here, guys, a lot to catch up on over the past couple of weeks as a lot of what Sanan talks about in his book and in the interview kind of smoldering in the online world seems to have moved out into the offline world on January 6th. Not much. Let's see. We could spend the whole show talking about all the things that have changed. You have the insurrection, right? And clearly that was driven and organized by social media. I mean, that's been proven. You have the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, bringing along with, what, 48 states, bringing suit against uh, Facebook and Google, both for anti-competition. And then you had Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Joe's Garage, all banning Trump from their platforms. And then just today, as we record, Twitter has said that Donald Trump is banned permanently, even if he runs for office again. So, yeah, it's obviously a very dramatic change in terms of the world of social media, in terms of what it's done and how people are reacting to it. There were claims, and you still hear it quite a bit today because he wasn't the only one not kicked off Twitter about censorship. First. Mm-hmm. And I, I found this kind of interesting because on one hand, obviously it's not government censorship, which is what the First Amendment refers to, but it does point to the power of the social networks now that being removed from it you know, significantly reduces your ability to enter into the public debate. But I want to modify that very quickly and say the president's the president. So he can talk to the American people whenever he wants. He can just walk out to the press room. He can sit down and do an interview with CNN, but he doesn't want to do any of that because that's all mediated and has pushback. And he just seems to be lost. One other thing I want to add about this, and the reason I'm doing it is because it is also something that happened very recently. And it's the podcast that we did last week that Candace and I did around Navalny and his return to Russia after having been poisoned by the Russian secret police and having to go to Germany, recovered, then going back to Russia. Russia is basically a place without any independent free journalism. And some journalists have been killed for trying, right? But because of social media, Navalny made a video about what he called the Putin Palace, which is over a billion dollars. And it's a resort that he built on the Black Sea. And he creates this very well-produced video that really almost kind of reminds me of a 60 Minutes expose. And he's gotten 100 million views, right? It's simply not the case that this is, 
We just got to get rid of it. I mean, A, we couldn't do yeah. that. But B, there's clearly a social good associated with yeah. it. And yeah. so how do you have the one and not the other? And I think that's why Sinan is just such a great guest, because that's what he's thinking about. How do we manage this? better than we are right now, such that we can sustain the good, political and social, that comes out of these social media and attenuate, control some of these really, really bad effects. You know, we, we now are in a country where a sizable percentage of the population has been radicalized online. And it seems to me that we have, and they've been radicalized into this big lie, and into believing that all this election stuff is all a huge fraud and that for some of them anyway that they need to take action because of it and that's what we saw on the sixth now part of the problem you know if this were islamic terrorists that had become radicalized online this way we have all kinds of legal tools and investigative tools at our disposal to break it up to do something about it and we even have ways of thinking about what to do about people that have been radicalized online. But in the domestic sphere, we don't have any of those options. So we have far fewer legal options. We have far fewer investigative options. And we seem to be at a loss about what to do about these people. I mean, I'm often struck about the kind of talk that says, oh, what we need to do is just make sure the real facts are out there for people to see, to counter whatever they're getting that's false or not true or however you want to put it. But I don't think that's actually how you de-radicalize terrorists. I think you de-radicalize them. That's not how you pull somebody out of a cult. You pull somebody out of a cult by using people that were in the cult. Mm -hmm. Pull people out of radicalization into, into, say, you know, Islamic terrorism by using people that were radicalized and have been brought back out. And those are the people that are the most effective. But we haven't worked that out. And I think in part it's because we don't want to say what I'm saying, because I really think it's true. We have a whole bunch of people in this country who have been radicalized online. And I think Sanan has some ideas about that based on, on his research, what might work, what the government's role might be. So I think now is a good time to head into the interview and then maybe come back and talk more about some of those trade-offs and some different ways that we might handle this moving forward. So uh, let's go now to the interview with Sanan Aral. Sanan Aral, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I have so many questions for you about social media and democracy and where we might start to go from here. But before we get to all of that, I think we should kind of orient our listeners a little bit to your work and your framework for thinking about these issues. Your latest book is called The Hype Machine, and I thought that that might be a good place to start. Can you tell us what is The Hype Machine? Sure, absolutely. So the hype machine is the social media industrial complex, the platforms like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, Snapchat, WeChat, and so on, and all of the sort of ecosystem around those platforms that really are controlling now what people see how people think about the world, whether it's about our elections or our democracy, to their social circles, to products to buy, to 
even artistic inclinations. And so really the book is a deep dive into how this system works, how the algorithms under the hood work, what is the neuroscience of it all, how does the economics of it work, and then what does that mean for our society from democracy to public health to our economy, and how can we fix it? That's really the main point of the book is how do we fix the social media crisis that we find ourselves in? Yeah. And for so long, I feel like the conversation around social media and democracy is broken down in a fairly binary way. On the one hand, there's this, I think that the pro-technology argument of these platforms are forces for democratic good because they bring people together. If this were 10 years ago, we'd be talking about the Arab Spring and, you know, all these sorts of things. And on the other hand, there is, well, these are just money-making corporations like everybody else. They don't really care about democracy. And it's, we've sort of been stuck in that paradigm, I feel like, for a while now. And I think your book, and as you were just starting to say, really takes a more nuanced view here and looks at both the promise and the peril that the hype machine offers. I mean, do you feel like we are at a place now where we can maybe start to have some of that more nuanced conversation and break out of some of these patterns we've been in when it comes to thinking about social media and democracy? I certainly hope so. And you hit the nail on the head. We had a decade of techno-utopianism followed by a decade of techno-dystopianism where the sky is falling and social media is destroying democracy and so on. And I think we absolutely must get past this question of, is social media good or evil? The answer is yes. The question is, how are we going to harness the promise of social media and avoid the peril? And we've had a number of really interesting movies and books recently. For instance, The Social Dilemma on Netflix. We had great books like Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff and Zucked by Roger McNamee. And really, my book takes off where these books and movies leave off, which is to ask, what do we do? What can we concretely do to achieve the promise of social media and avoid the peril? The sort of black and white arguments of good and evil are no longer helpful, in my opinion. Yeah. And so thinking about this notion of hyper-personalization, you talk a lot in the book about the kind of birds of a feather mentality, social media advertising targets, products and services we might be interested based on what these platforms already know about us, what they know about our friends, our existing social connections. And so it kind of leads to this world that's ever more fragmented. And that seems to me to be kind of antithetical to how we think about democracy, which is having a shared understanding of the world, a shared set of facts and information. And so whether you're talking about news, which fake news and misinformation is its own thing, or even whether you're thinking about products and services to buy, it's just so very different depending on who you are and what things you're interested in. So I'm wondering how you square that part of the hype machine with some of the bigger questions about what it takes to sustain a healthy democracy. Well, I mean, I think that one of the most important questions facing democracy today is the implications of polarization, of factionalization of society, of affective political polarization, which is sort of the hatred 
of one party to another. I think this is one of the most serious threats to democracy. It threatens us being able to get anything done in Congress and in the executive branch in the United States. And polarization is taking rise in other parts of the world as well. And so it's front and center of concerns around democracy, and therefore it's front and center in the book. So I have a whole chapter devoted to this polarization, factionalization, and the role of social media in polarization in the book. And I, as in all parts of the book, try to get really deep into the science, the evidence of what we actually know about the relationship between polarization and social media. And this goes back a hundred years to Francis Galton, who first wrote down the science of the wisdom of crowds. And so Surowiecki wrote this great book called The Wisdom of Crowds in 2004, where he argued that wise crowds are much wiser than any expert or any individual's opinion. And the only problem, the math behind this and the evidence for these sort of the wisdom of crowds is great. But the only problem with this argument was that Surowiecki wrote the book in 2004, the same year that Mark Zuckerberg invented Facebook. And the reason that's a problem is because the wisdom of crowds is based on three principles, the independence of opinion, the equality of voices of those opinions, and the diversity of opinions. And social media systematically destroys all three of those pillars. And so in that chapter, I go into all of the detailed evidence on equality, diversity, and independence and how social media erodes all three. And the thing that's really in particularly important to it is the large-scale experimental evidence that shows that the algorithms of social media tend to polarize us, to increase affective polarization, to increase a certain point of view. And when you widen this out to the world and you talk about what's known as the splinter net, which is that some countries are banning certain social media platforms. There's the great firewall in China where they have different social media than the rest of the world. India has banned TikTok. The United States has threatened to ban certain social media apps. If we get a bifurcated or variegated set of social media apps around the world, we may have populations in different countries that have completely different worldviews, then it becomes really difficult to have any common ground and therefore to solve global challenges like climate change and international conflict. So as we think about how to, again, get past some of this or, you know, move past some of what we've been kind of saying for years now that these things are problems, you talk in the book about Spotify's Discover Weekly, I believe it's called, where mm -hmm. there's a universe in which these algorithms could be harnessed to show people content that is different than what they're used to seeing or what might typically be prescribed for them. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like and whether you think it might be viable for news content or politically motivated content? Yeah. So we did a big experiment with the algorithm that recommends Spotify's podcasts, which include news podcasts and podcasts about democracy and politics and political science and all of those, as well as other podcasts. And what we found is that recommendations based on personal listening 
history tend to narrow one's listening portfolio, that you get narrower and narrower as I recommend more of what I think you like based on what you have seen in the past. But two really important caveats came out of this study, which is to say, although the algorithm created polarization in the content that we were listening to on Spotify, when we turned the algorithm off in the experiment, people's preferences went back to diversity. So people's preferences were resilient to the algorithmic narrowing that was created, which gives us hope that we can get ourselves out of the polarization created by algorithms. The second thing that we talk about in that study is the difference between single objective function algorithms, which are just narrowly trying to maximize your engagement, and multi-objective recommendation algorithms, which are also trying to do other things, like, for instance, give you more diversity, allowing you to discover new things. And that Discover Weekly podcast or list by Spotify is a perfect example where one of the objectives there is to introduce you to new things. So I think the moral of the story is that we get what we build. If we build algorithms that are myopic and narrowly designed to maximize short-term engagement, we may get narrower and narrower consumption and thus more polarization, people separated from what other people are viewing and listening to. But if we are more holistic in our thinking, we can actually design algorithms that benefit more than just the short-term engagement objective and perhaps give us new perspectives or an idea of what the other side is thinking or more diversity of thought. Yeah. So this clearly has taken hold in some form at Spotify. What is the appetite for this type of thinking or these types of changes at Facebook, Twitter, some of the other kind of major social media players? Well, I think it is increasing and it should be high. And let me take those in reverse order. It should be high because I believe that the true sort of leaders of the new social age, as I call it, will be the ones that realize that in the long run, the long run shareholder value maximizing strategy for any of these social platforms is to align themselves with society's values, values that embrace diversity, things that are good for society. And what do I mean by that? Well, chasing short-term engagement with salacious, blood-boiling, polarizing content is not long-term sustainable because it meets with a backlash. It meets with a consumer backlash. It meets with a regulatory backlash, as we're seeing the delete Facebook movement, the stop hate for profit movement. We're seeing regulatory backlash in Congress around privacy, around antitrust, around many other things, speech regulation, Section 230, the Communications Decency Act. None of that is long-term shareholder value maximizing for the platform. So they should have a higher appetite for algorithmic design that benefits society and sort of creates sustainable, positive outcomes for society. And 
it's increasing because we even saw Jack Dorsey at congressional hearings in November and December say that he favors algorithmic choice on the part of the user, giving the user a suite of options of algorithms and letting them choose, I want an algorithm that gives me more diversity or that displays my content just in reverse chronological order with no waiting to certain posts or other posts and so on. And so there has been some indications of a move towards more algorithmic choice among the platforms. You also talk a lot in the book about fake news. I wrote in my notes as I was going through the book, fake news super spreaders, thinking about kind of the COVID context. I just thought it was an interesting point about how the actual how broad the reach of fake news is might not be as much as it seems to be if you pay attention to mainstream media or things like this. Can you talk a little bit about the proliferation of fake news and you know how far, how wide it goes on social media? We did a 10-year study of the spread of true and false news on Twitter, which was published on the cover of Science Magazine in March 2018. And that was the study that showed basically that falsity travels faster than the truth. But It also is a small fraction of any given citizen's media diet. Now, it's a greater fraction of older citizens and more conservative citizens' media diets, but it is a small fraction of the overall media diet. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should be reassured, because in order to know whether that's important or not, we have to know, does it affect decision-making? Take voting, for instance. When you look at the impact of fake news on voting, what you see is that the impact on vote choice, i.e. who you will vote for, conditional on the fact that you vote, is that it's negligible to zero. That basically fake news is not going to change someone's vote, say, from Donald Trump to Joe Biden or from Joe Biden to Donald Trump. But the second half of the story is that there is significant evidence that it affects voter turnout, that fake news misinformation can sway or create or deter a very significant number of votes. And therefore, if elections are close in a district or in a state or in any given election, fake news could affect the results of that election through its effects on vote choice. And we should note that most of the misinformation campaigns that happened in 2016 and in 2020 were about voter suppression getting people to either vote or to not vote. And that's really the concern. And on that point about steps that the platforms have taken, you listed off several things that they've done, but they kind of center around triaging this content after it's been posted. Do you think that that is the correct approach, given what we also know and what you've said before about how this fake content spreads so much more quickly and has such a quicker reach than content that's truthful in nature? Yeah, I mean, I think that... The platforms do have reactive and proactive approaches. So they have machine learning algorithms that are trying to identify fake news and getting to label it almost immediately as it's posted or right after it's posted to block things like the live streaming of mass murders, like the killing in Christchurch, New Zealand. That kind of content can be automatically filtered 
flagged or taken down, banned prior to or just as it's being posted. Then there's a set of information that they label reactively upon seeing it posted or upon having it flagged by users. And that whole labeling system is something I talk about extensively in my book. It's something I called for in late 2017, early 2018 in a widely viewed TED Talk where I talk a lot about how labeling is one of the important solutions to the spread of falsity online. And then finally, they do have proactive approaches as well. So taking down fake accounts, taking down malicious networks of bots and other actors is a proactive measure. So Facebook, for instance, has banned QAnon. They have been for weeks and months now working to take down QAnon. They have taken down a number of foreign networks. They have taken down a number of inauthentic accounts and so on. So those would be considered proactive measures. So before the pandemic started, I feel like some of these movements around delete Facebook and some of these other campaigns were starting to pick up steam, but then the pandemic hits and we're all doom scrolling on Twitter and buying masks from Instagram ads and watching videos on TikTok all day and really relying on these platforms for information, for social connection, for basically many, many aspects of our lives, much more so than before the pandemic. So how do you think COVID-19 has changed the appetite or the likelihood that some of the reforms that we've been talking about for the, the hype machine will come to fruition or the speed with which they'll come? Well, I think we have a window of opportunity right now in the next 18 to 24 months to start to make meaningful changes that really are absolutely necessary and critical. I mean, it is no doubt in my mind and now I think clear to everyone else. I've been researching this for 20 years, but I think now people are waking up to the fact that social media has an undue influence on vast elements of our society, from democracy to our public health, the spread of coronavirus misinformation, to our elections, to our economies, and so on. And so it's essential that we start to reform this system, and we have this window of opportunity. Now, the last chapter of the book, which is also the longest chapter in the book, goes into detail about what do we do. And it's not 30,000-foot platitudes about approaches or perspectives. It's concrete suggestions for how we reform this system. And the broad contours of the argument are that it all begins with creating competition in the social economy. That is the entry ticket to solving the social media crisis. But when I say that, people immediately think, oh, you mean break up Facebook. And as you mentioned early on, we may get to that conversation here. But let me just sort of state at the outset that I think that it's not a breakup of Facebook that is going to solve the competition problem in social media. It's a structural reform of the social media economy itself. And we can get into what I mean by that. But that's the entry ticket. Create competition because without competition, the platforms have no incentive to change their ways. We have to give them an incentive to change where they feel the pressure on their bottom line. Then we have a series of market failures that we have to deal with in turn. Privacy, the spread of falsity, free speech versus hate speech, 
election integrity. And I address each of these market failures in turn with what are the approaches to solve them. And in the book, I describe four levers that we have to steer social media towards the promise and away from the peril. And that's money, code, norms, and laws. Money is the business models of the social media platforms. We were just talking about the ad-driven model or the subscription model, which business model is the best for society. Code is the design of the platforms and the algorithms themselves underlying the platforms. Norms are how we adopt the technology and use it, and laws are how we regulate the technology. So in the last chapter, after I talk about competition, I go through each of those market failures, privacy, free speech versus hate speech, election integrity, the spread of falsity, and so on. And I describe how we use those four levers to get out of this social media crisis. You also talk in the book about the kind of need or your vision for creating a national commission on technology and democracy. Do you think that there's any appetite for that in a Biden White House? Well, I certainly hope so, because we absolutely need more experts in this conversation. And right now, when I watch these hearings, congressmen and women questioning the heads of the social media platforms and so on, I can't help but think to myself that they could use a healthy dose of expertise, because I think that these topics are incredibly complex, nuanced They require rigor. They require us to bring science to bear on exactly what the implications of an algorithm or a policy are out there in society. Large-scale experiments that we've been conducting for 20 years, and when I say large-scale, I mean we do research on hundreds of millions of data points at a time. That kind of evidence is essential to really knowing what the implications of social media are for society. And to date, I do not see that expertise injected into the conversation enough. I don't see the right people with a seat at the table of the conversation. And that portends very bad outcomes for this in the long run. A national commission on technology and democracy would bring scientists, activists, platform leaders, academics of various kinds, as well as the platform leaders and members of industry and political leaders together to have a meaningful conversation that brings that science expertise and experience to bear on the questions at hand. Without that, I fear that this process will become highly politicized and will not be informed. And that lack of being informed is going to make it impossible to achieve the outcomes we want to achieve. So I implore the Biden administration to bring experts into their administration to deal with these absolutely essential topics and to create this commission. Great. Well, we will link to the book and to your work at MIT so folks can check out those projects and follow them as they progress. But Sanan, thank you very much for joining us today. Really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. All right. So that was terrific. It really lays out not just the good and the bad, but also where we go from there. Yeah, I thought that Um, business on crowdsourcing, by the way, was a really interesting way to think about some of the impact of social media. 
Oh, no, I agree. And the whole wisdom of the crowds thing. That's what I mean, uh, wisdom of the crowds. Yeah, I mean, and why it doesn't work in this case, right? I mean, yeah. that it's not independent, that it's not diverse, it's not independent, it's just not going to work. But wisdom of the crowds does work, right? The famous example from the 1900s where the crowd guessed the weight of the ox within one pound. Yeah. Nobody yeah. was closer. I mean, no one was remotely closer. You couldn't get closer, right? But yeah. because of the crowd itself, they were able to just get it right. But if you don't have the structure in place, wisdom of the crowds doesn't work. And that's basically where we are. Yeah. It, was, it reminded me a little bit. It was like another way of thinking about this kind of epistemological polarization that we've talked about a bit, but framing it very differently. I mean, suggesting that in different countries and different places, you're going to be creating your own sort of reality based on what the algorithms are pushing out to people in those places. Uh, well, because you have different platforms, right? China's going to have its own platform. platform. Yeah. Exactly. And I saw a statistic that said that 64% of Facebook users were directed to more extreme politics by Facebook algorithms. Yeah, that was and that's a, not that because was, Facebook wants you to be more extreme, per se. They want you to spend more time on Facebook. They want you to get more people to come onto Facebook and spend more time on Facebook. Because every time they do that, Facebook makes more money. And the best way to do that is to push people towards the extreme, to make them angry, and to tell them lies. And, I mean, I'm sorry, but that's just pretty much empirical. There's no editorializing what I just said. At least I don't think there is. Clearly, these platforms are playing a big and vital role in our democracy. But, you know, like media, they're not driven by the desire to necessarily be better for democracy. They're just trying to make money. Yeah. I mean, in the interview, Sinan mentioned that Jack Dorsey says that uh, he favors algorithmic choice on the part of the user, right? Well, and so he wants an algorithm that would give the user more diversity or more access to diverse points of view. And I'm like, well, what is stopping him, right? I mean, he's got literally the smartest coders in the world working yeah, for him. I if he wanted to do that, he could do it. And if he doesn't want to do that, it's because it's not going to serve his long-term business interests. Yeah. And I think that's what you're seeing. Yeah, well, and people also, that's what they want. And if you're making billions of dollars by having created this platform that people love and use for precisely that purpose, why should they be stopped? I mean, Jack Dorsey, it's just the American dream, right? He created the better mousetrap and now he's filthy rich. He yeah. hasn't done anything wrong. And if people use it in ways that aren't necessarily beneficial to democracy, that's not his fault, right? I mean, that's basically the argument that people are making, these people who are in control of these platforms. But so, at some point, you just have to wonder, well, there's a public interest here as well. So perhaps what these sorts of media need, social media is going to need at some point, is some sort of regulatory approach to dealing with this, because that's what we do in this country when we feel like people's pursuit of profit, which they're fully entitled to do, is running up against the public interest, is we regulate it. And so there's talk about different ways of regulating it, including breaking them up is, I guess, one way of regulating it. And I'm sure there are other ideas out there about regulating it, but he didn't really go into them on the interview, I don't think, what those might be. 
So he's talking about creating this group, this advisory committee on technology and democracy that would try to address these questions and what would make the most sense. How do you balance these competing goods? Yeah, we keep hearing about national commissions, right? We need a commission to investigate what happened on 1-6. We need a commission on technology here to technology and democracy. And the thing is, commissions strike me as a thing from another era. That in this highly polarized time, putting together nonpartisan commissions to investigate things seems increasingly problematic. And maybe that's wrong. And maybe Joe Biden is going to bring them back in some way or another. I I'm struck that nothing of that sort has been announced for what happened on the 6th yet, but maybe they're waiting until the impeachment is done before they move in that direction. But clearly there is a stirring in Congress going on. Most of it has been the way Congress tends to be, right, which is a highly simplistic kind of response. And that has to do with doing something about Section 230, which is critical to protecting these technology companies against being held liable for the content on their sites. I mean, you're absolutely right about commissions. And in some cases, there's a Republican and a Democratic report on stuff associated with Trump's first impeachment and whatnot. But the only thing that leaves me to be a little less pessimistic in this case is that, again, Republicans and Democrats are dissatisfied with the current condition. And it's unlikely that the current condition is going to stay. And I think part of Facebook and Twitter getting out in front of this is their assumption that something is going to change. And so I would rather that at least that effort start by being more deliberate, thoughtful, and organized than slipshod and reactive. Yeah, and that's why I think a commission is really needed for January 6th to understand all kinds of angles on what happened there. Impeachment's going to get us only into a very, very, very narrow slice of what was going on there. But even for people that are watching the impeachment hearings, it really is remarkable to see the tweets laid on top of the timeline of everything that had happened. And so it was very clear that this was a platform that the president was able to use completely unmediated in riling up and bringing together a crowd. Well, yeah, (laughs) to be continued. I mean, it strikes me that uh, Sinan is absolutely right that we're at this moment where we have to start taking these problems seriously and figuring out what to do about them. And it strikes me as unlikely that something won't happen And we're grateful to uh, Sanan for laying out some of the options. So thanks to him and to Jenna for the interview. And thanks for uh, an interesting conversation, Michael. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. And thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.